tell you that model, but it has warranty. The guy said to me from the manufacturer, he says, okay. uh, when you guys bought it, it came with two So just be careful with this. The, um, that could turn off easily a little bit. Oh, fuck. Let me get this. I wonder who had the uh, receipt for that. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil Alameen. يا رب لك الحمد كما ينبغي لجلال وجهك ولعظيم سلطانك وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله واحد أحد فرد صمد لم يلد ولم يولد ولم يكن له كفوا أحد وأشهد أن سيدنا ومولانا وحبيبنا محمدا صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم عبده ورسوله أرسل على فترة من الرسل وقلة من العلم وضلالة في الناس من يطع الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا مضل له ومن يعص الله ورسوله وأولي الأمر من المؤمنين فلا هادي له ومن يتوكل على الله فإن الله على كل شيء قدير أيها المؤمنون. I know some are expecting a particular type of khutbah, and that expectation comes from, of course, seasonal being a seasonal or an occasional Muslim. We've been protracting a uh, a struggle against the deviation that set in early in Islamic history that we have inherited as Muslims of the world and it sort of makes it quite difficult to think for an average Muslim to think that I can be a post Sunni Shia Muslim that, that becomes quite difficult for some people the difficulty comes from the burden of these centuries of being more or less incarcerated in the traditionalization of Allah's deen, where basically we had 1400 years ago an Umayyad dynasty steal the governance of the Muslims through wars and purges and assassinations and all the vices 
that are committed by those who have power and wealth. And then they imposed on us what we are still suffering from today. It doesn't matter what type of background a particular Muslim belongs to, you still suffer from an action and a reaction from a mistake and the attempt to adjust that deviation and that mistake. In other words, we live, most of the Muslims of today live in a mentality in which certain performances of rituals, they've become the standard of our Islam. And we've spoken about this in the previous khutbas of how certain schools of thought have passed judgment on those who belong to other schools of thought. We tried as much as possible to avoid the sensitivities in the Muslim mind and Muslim psychology. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says وَأَنَّ هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكُمْ أُمَّةً وَاحِدًا وَأَنَا رَبُّكُمْ فَاعْبُدُونَ In another ayah in Surah Al-Mu'minun وَأَنَا رَبُّكُمْ فَاتَّقُونَ وَأَنَّ هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكُمْ أُمَّةً وَاحِدًا وَأَنَا رَبُّكُمْ Okay, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying we are this is one ummah then why is it on the personal level we don't behave as if we are one solid group of people there are divisive notions and there are psychological chills among the Muslims and they have to come from somewhere when you think about it, look, give it a little mental effort and try to figure out where did this thing come from? And then there's a characteristic of Muslims who are mature. And the subjects of a Rahman who walk in a very composed manner on earth, and if they are addressed by those who are ignorant, they say Salama. Maybe the in understanding this ayah in the context that we are speaking about, it would be like this. I'm just going to give a, uh, a short example. You have a teacher in a classroom, and the teacher knows his or her subject matter very well. And then you have the students who don't know their subject matter very well because they are there to learn. And some of these students are slow at learning or simply in some instances they cannot get it they can't understand the the theory or they can't understand the formula 
or they can't understand the lesson. So the, what happens? The person who has the knowledge, the teacher in the classroom, what does he do? Does he get upset with the student who is trying to do his or her best to understand, but they just can't understand? What do you do? Do you get hostile? Does the teacher become an enemy of the student? If he has more knowledge, does that justify bad feelings between the person who has the knowledge and the person who doesn't have the knowledge? That's how some of us behave towards each other. Some of us have some knowledge or have all the knowledge. And some of us don't have any knowledge or just have a trifling amount of knowledge, a small amount of knowledge. Why is there this bad feeling between these two groups of people? الذين يس another ayah الذين يستمعون القول فيتبعون أحسنا those who listen in on what's being said and then follow through with the best that they can of it of what they are listening to we don't behave according to these ayat especially in the coming weeks open your eyes. Open your ears. Zero in on the behavior of Muslims and you will find that they flunk the meanings of these ayat. فَأَمَّا الزَّبَدُ فَيَذْهَبُ جُفَاءً وَأَمَّا مَا يَنْفَعُ النَّاسَ فَيَمْكُثُ فِي الْأَرْضِ the, the foam it goes with the running water. It has no weight of its own. It has no substance to it. And this this is the type of behavior and character that we are stuck with. Now I want to be more descriptive, more concrete in what I am saying. I Before I begin my examples, I want to mention something. On one occasion, I don't want to be more specific than that. There was a, a salah, salat al-dhuhr. And that salat al-dhuhr was being led by a particular imam of a particular school of thought. So in this salat al-dhuhr, Muslims from different schools of thought were present. <clears throat> and there must have been, if my memory recalls, because this was some years ago, maybe about 70 or 80 who were attending the Salah. And almost all of them prayed together except for a few individuals who did not pray with the rest of the Muslims. So after the Salah was over, Yours truly went to some of these individuals and said, "Well, why don't you? Why didn't you join the rest of the Muslims in the salah?" They said, "No, we we can we, this because the person who's leading the salah, his 
I, I'm paraphrasing this. I don't want to be more specific. But the person speaking to me was more sp specific. He said, the person who's leading the salah, his madhab does not qualify him to perform a valid, valid salah. وَإِذَا خَاطَبَهُمُ الْجَاهِلُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا اللهم اجعلنا من الذين يستمعون القول فيتبعون أحسنه. So the discussion was terminated there. This is the person you're speaking, I was speaking to, was probably in his 50s, and it's almost too late in life to change someone's opinion about a matter like this within a few minutes. On another occasion, someone was leading a salah and the salah was a qadha salah and in the Islamic schools of thought some of the Islamic schools of thought madhahib they say if you are praying, whatever salah you are praying, jahriya or sirriya, a salah in which you vocalize or you express yourself to yourself when no one can hear you, whatever it is, that's the way you pray it, hadiran or qadha'an. Let's say salat al-fajr. Salat al-fajr, we say it out loud. So whether I'm praying it in its time, I pray it out loud. Or whether I'm praying it in another time, let's say during the day, I still pray it out loud. Now there may be an Islamic school of thought that tells you, no, if you are praying Salat Al-Fajr during the day, you pray it like the other Salahs during the day, meaning a Dhuhr and Asr, and you don't pray it out loud. On this particular instance, which yours truly heard and saw with eyes and ears, the person was praying in violation of one of these two opinions. And someone, Ma'moom, in the back, may Allah have mercy on his soul, he passed away. He began saying, Subhanallah, 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 like something serious has happened here. Alhamdulillah, the Imam who was leading the prayer was smart enough, instead of reading the Qadha Salah silently, he began reading it out loud. And the person stopped saying, Subhanallah, but just two examples of fiqhi issues that ca can become potentially issues of bad feelings among Muslims. This is Umawi stuff. We have the expanse and the toleration and the comfort that Allah has given us. We have enough to accommodate ourselves. Now, this is these are some of the examples. I'm going to try to be somewhat short. These are some of the examples 
that can potentially cause Muslims to be divided and have bad feelings because of some fiqhi issues. Fiqhi issues here that are contradictory. We were speaking about fiqhi issues before that were less than contradictory. Now we are speaking about issues that are opposite each other. When we when we perform our salah and we go into our ruku'ah, we read the Fatiha, we read another surah, and then we begin our ruku'ah. There are some school of schools of thought that say you have to extend your hands towards your ears, just like when you say takbirat al-ihram, you raise your hands. Well, you have to do that before the ruku'ah and after the ruku'ah. This is wajib in some schools of thought. I think it's enough to just put it like that. I don't want to be more specific because I know those who have been raised in the Umawi fiqhi atmospherics become hypersensitive. If I mention the schools of thought, so I'm not going to mention them. Unless someone wants to know them for detail after the khutbah, I'm more than willing to tell you who said what. So they say this is wajib. Our brothers in some parts of Africa, they say no. This is what they call a bid'ah. It's something you're not supposed to do in your salah. In another predominant school of thought, for roughly estimated half a billion Muslims follow that school of thought. They say no, it is illegit to raise your hand before and after the ruku'ah. And some in that same school of thought say you've annulled your salah if you did that. Which reminds me, when I was growing up in my teens and early 20s, used to go to one of these major masajid in Bilad al-Sham. I don't want to mention the name once again. I want people here to get sensitive. And then it's Zuhr prayers. We're studying in that masjid in which hundreds of people come and pray. And then some people are praying Zuhr and other people are sitting down. They're not praying. They wait until the first group finishes and then they begin to pray a Zuhr on their own. A few hundred people praying a Zuhr as a separate jama'ah followed by another hundred or so people praying a Zuhr as a separate jama'ah. When Allah says, I mean, when you see something like that and you ask some of these people, they say, well, that salah that was performed the other way is an invalid salah. What does that say about the other Muslim when you say their salah is invalid? What does that say? It's another way of saying he or she is a lesser Muslim 
or it's another way of opening up the door of discrimination and segregation in our Islam. I mean, we know about segregation and discrimination in the material world. Now we want it in our Islam. That's what the facts on the ground. Look at them. The facts on the ground look you in the face and tell you this is the way you're behaving. When we come to takbirat al-ihram, when we first begin our salah, after the adhan and the iqama, before the first rak'ah, we say Allahu Akbar. That's called takbirat al-ihram. In one particular school of thought, takbirat al-ihram, you don't raise your hands. They say it's illegitimate to do that. It's not right to do that. Another school of thought says, no, it's not encouraged to do that. And then in other schools of thought, I'm skipping the details of these schools of thought purposefully. Because I know there are many individuals who listen to this khutbah and I don't want to get on anyone's nerves. And I don't want their minds to shut off. I want them to understand the gist of what I'm getting at. And that is that we should be together. Even though we have these different types of inconsistencies. And then there's other schools of thought that says if you don't raise your hand at takbirat al-ihram you you gain a violation an ithm and then in other schools of thought if you don't raise your hands during takbirat al-ihram then your salah is invalid These opinions that are in our books of fiqh that, that are understood in a divisive way are in violation of the ayat that I quoted to you at the beginning of the khutbah. وَأَنَّ هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكُمْ أُمَّةً وَاحِدًا Or وَاعْتَصِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا Or إِنَّمَا الْمُؤْمِنُونَ إِخْوَةً In the salah, you see, if you do something in one school of thought, your salah is valid. If you do the same thing in another school of thought, your salah is invalid. This is wrong. We can't characterize these issues on the basis of validity. We have to give ourselves the respect and the accommodation to say to the other Muslim that as long as in your heart and in your mind you think this is the right way to do it, Allah is going to accept it from you even though I don't do it that way. And I hope you can say the same thing about me. When we mature to that degree, 
we are on our way to closing our ranks. Another issue is the, the Imam is leading the Salah. And behind the Imam, there are followers who are in the Salah. Do they read the Fatiha or do they not read the Fatiha? In some of these schools of thought, you have to read the Fatiha when you are following the Imam. You have to. Your Salah is not accepted if you don't do that. Or is not valid if you don't do that. In another Islam, and these are major Islamic schools of thought. In another one, it says, you cannot read the Fatiha. And if you do, your Salah is invalid. Look at this. Look how far these divisive issues have taken their root inside. This is, this is the Umawi Islam that we are still suffering from. Same thing can be said about Salat al-Janazah. You read the Fatiha and Salat al-Janazah, you don't read the Fatiha. According to some schools of thought, if you read it, you that's a mistake. You shouldn't have done that in the first Rakah. And the others say, no, it's wajib. There's no Salat al-Janazah without reading Surah al-Fatiha. Please, brothers and sisters, let's pray for a time when we can say, MashaAllah, if that's how some Muslims want to do it, and that's how other Muslims want to do it, let them do it in their own way. But let them not divide the Muslims in doing what their hearts tell them to do, like is the case. Then we have one of the, even though I'm not going to mention the schools of thought in this, but I, I think it's common sense and you're going to understand the schools of thought. We have a salah itself. All, all Muslims agree that a salah is wajibah. It is fard, mandatory, obligatory upon every Muslim. Everyone understands that. But what do you do when it comes to... Okay, first of all, the, the way we perform our salah. If we are in good health, we perform our salah as we perform our salah we stand up we bow down we do our prostration we stand up again back and forth but if someone is incapable they can't stand up they can pray when they're sitting down why make a big issue about this if someone is unable to sit down they can pray while they are lying down in bed if they are incapable of moving, if they are paralyzed, they can't move anything in them, they can perform their salah inside themselves without any bodily movement. And this has been, I think, something that is understood by all of these schools of thought. When, when a person is going to a war front you're living in conditions and circumstances of war you can perform a salah in another manner if you're in a, a tank and warfare is going on there are bombs and explosions all over the place you think you, you stand you go outside of your tank and you become an easy target and you kill yourself no you can perform your salah 
in the tank that you are in. Just as an example. In the time of war, there's a war front. <laughs> Instead of the four raka'at, let's say for Salat al-Dhuhr, you pray two raka'at for Salat al-Dhuhr. And one raka'ah, half of the troops will follow you in as an imam. After that first raka'ah, the first half will leave and the second half will join in the second raka'ah. Now, th- doesn't this show a flexibility in the performance of a salah? Allah is giving us flexibility and we are turning stiff against ourselves. And then it is agreed upon among the majority of the fuqaha that in the time of travel, safar, that as-salah is the ruba'iyah. Oh, there's dhuhr al-asr and isha. Three ruba'iyah, three salah with four rak'at in them. Those are reduced to two rak'at in the time of traveling. Now, the issue of traveling is another issue that is left to a person's own. No one can come dictate to you and tell you this is exactly what traveling means all over the world for everyone in the world. It's not like that. It's like al-fitr. It's all right if I skip out of this for a moment. Zakat al-fitr. That is supposed to be paid before the end of Ramadan. Before Salat al-Aid. They come and tell you zakat al-fitr is seven dollars. Someone says four and a half dollars. Another person says ten dollars. Zakat al-fitr cannot be imposed in a numerical dollar or whatever currency amount on any particular individual. Salah uh, zakat al-fitr is the estimate of the average meal you eat. If you're a poor person, the average meal that you eat is something maybe like $2. I don't know. I'm just saying this out loud. So that's your zakat al-fitr. If you are a person that Allah has given a lot of money and wealth to you, and mashallah, you eat a very expensive meal, you may go out and figure what the average of your... And it's $15 or $20. Your zakat al-fitr becomes that amount. But we have, because of the umawi imposition on us, and the reaction to it, we have people who come and want to impose one value on everyone in the world, in every society, unless, you know, there's a fluctuation in currency and all of this. Then from decade to decade, they'll increase a dollar or whatever the currency is to it without understanding the dynamics of it and this is what happens here in a salah when someone wants to try when someone is traveling what does he pay i mean what does he pray does he pray two rakat does he pay pray four rakat? leave that up to the individual himself you are interfering with that individual's relationship with Allah if you impose on him 
what to do. And then there is al-jama'ah. Do you combine Salat al-Zuhr and Salat al-Asr, Salat al-Maghrib and Salat al-Isha? <coughs> In the Hajj, there's Salat al-Jama'ah. In the most of these schools of thought, there's Salat al-Jama'ah. Al-Zuhr and al-Asr are prayed Jama'ah taqdeem. And Al-Maghrib and Al-Isha are prayed Jama'ah Ta'khir. Meaning you, the first one you pray Al-Asr with the Zuhr. And the second one, the Jama'ah Ta'khir, you pray the Maghrib with the Isha at Isha time. So all of this is, is a sort of common knowledge among all of the Muslims. What is not common knowledge and it has to do with the Umawi interference is that the Prophet of Allah used to pray salat, he used to pray the jama' of the two salah, al-maghrib and al-isha as one and the dhuhr and al-asr as the other. He used to do it when he was not traveling. He, was, he used to do it when he was not ill. Because these are some of the justifications for doing something like that. So there are these issues. And then it comes to some people. And there's hadiths. Hadiths in At-Tirmidhi, in Al-Bukhari, etc. That the Prophet of Allah in Al-Madinah used to combine jama'ah min ghayri khawfin wala safar. He used to combine his salah and there was no state of fear. And he wasn't in traveling status. But what happened? What did the Umawis do to all of this? They came and they wanted to define Muslims on whether they combine their salah or they don't combine their salah. And thus we are stuck with the rituals that have become Unfortunately, they have become the standard bearers of looking at and perceiving the other Muslim. We pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us enough knowledge, enough moral fiber so that we can become in the healthy sense of the word Muslims, post-Sunni, post-Shi'i Muslims. And Sunni and Shi'i here are defined due to the influence of the Umawi destruction of who we are supposed to be. أقول قولي هذا وأستغفر الله لي ولكم أدعوه سبحانه وتعالى وأنتم على يقين بالإجابة وتوبوا إلى الله إن الله تواب رحيم الحمد لله بجميع المحامد على جميع النعم وصلى الله وسلم على المبعوث خيرا ورحمة وهدى لكافة الأمم محمد النبي الأمي وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم Dear committed Muslims 
much of the influence around the world about explaining Islam and explaining Iman, explaining Allah and His Prophet, much of that influence comes from the people who have the money. People who have money can speak with authority. That's the way the world is out there. It's not supposed to be like that, but that's the way they run the show. Supposed to speak with authority if you have money. If you don't have money, then you don't have any authority. Who's going to listen to you? Where did this come from? Also, if you want to trace it to its origins it comes from the Umawi deviation early on in Islamic history one of the brothers I don't see him here now he may come in a couple of minutes one of the brothers asked did Muawiyah die with a cross on him and yours truly here went to see Let's see what happened. I mean, I've heard things here and there. And it turns out, yes, he did die with a cross on him. This is a chapter in history that is presented or made absent by certain Muslims who belong to their position vis-a-vis that Umawi deviation. Those who oppose the Umawis, you will find this information in their book and they will probably circulate it and speak about it and give presentations and all of this, which is fine. Problem is not in relaying the information, the problem is in the attitude that relays the information. And then those who fell under the spell of Bani Umayyah, the Umawis, they hide this information. And then if they are sort of confident of themselves, says, okay, this is what happened. Muawiyah was dying. King Muawiyah was dying. Please, post-Sunni Shia Muslim would say King Muawiyah. I challenge any Sunni or any Shi'i to come out with a clean conscience and say Muawiyah was not a Khalifa. Muawiyah was not an Imam. Muawiyah was not Amir al-Mu'mineen. He was a king. And as long as we, whoever we are, from whichever background we come from, if we are not able to say that and draw that line, we will continue to play his game. Still, after 1400 years, some of us are enlisted in his ritualistic Islam and some of us are reacting to that. So these apologetics, these people, quote unquote Sunnis, we have many Sunnis who cannot weed out the Umawi influence in them. Umawi has nothing to do with Sunni. And for those of you who are conscious of the coming 
two or three weeks. For those of you who are conscious of these events, it is the attitude of some of you. I'm avoiding these words because I don't want to get on anyone's nerves. If you knew that 90% plus of those Muslims in the world who call themselves Sunnis or consider themselves Sunnis, they have a latent gravity towards the Prophet and those who belong to the Prophet. It's in their nature to show affection and love. The problem is, just like we had in the classroom, some people having information and they want to play masters over those who don't have information. This is where the problem begins. And so a reaction creates another reaction and then generates a third reaction. That's where we are. Anyways, they come and say back, I don't want to get <laughs> I don't want to get off course. We come back to those who are apologizing for King Muawiyah. They say he was dying. He had all of these physicians around him. They couldn't treat him. They didn't know how to treat him. And then he turns to the major physician. They remember he was in a land that was Byzantium. Damascus was part of Byzantium, the Roman Empire. And so the educated and the professional class there were not yet Muslims. So the head physician, so to speak, was a Christian. He said to Muawiyah, he said, we've tried everything, nothing worked. But there's one thing left that it worked in many cases before you. If you want to try that other remedy that we have, we can certainly try it. Of course, this king, the worldly king, who's attached to this world, said, yeah, what is it? Sure, what, just tell me what it is. He said, we put the cross on you. Putting the cross on you will cure you. Now, you can understand this strictly in a Christian context. And probably this person was trying to do it, this physician was trying to do it out of conviction to his own faith. And there's nothing wrong with that. But so Maui accepted. He said, sure, if this is going to cure me, by all means, give me the cross. And they put the cross on him. He didn't, uh, according to some uh, sources, he didn't survive another day or two and he died. So he died with that. So this is the type in today's world, we have Muawiyah, the Queen of England. She gives the cross to King Fahd. This was some years ago. Of course, King Fahd now is in the abode of eternity. He gives him the cross of honor. He takes it. What do you think? He has some. This is an Umawi king. We can't see the Umawis then as they are today. It's the same thing. But when they come and they create these divisions among us, those who have the information, or some of the correct information, 
because of these 1400 years they need it's a plus that they have correct information alhamdulillah but they need to learn how to communicate that information they haven't been doing I would think a very successful effort at it now these are the issues that we should be we the Muslims in the world should be speaking about during the khutbah on Friday things like in the past week or so there have been behind the scenes attempts to bring together negotiations between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Umawi Saudi Kingdom and these there's been efforts like this before and they usually used to come from strictly Islamic movement types but this time it has come from quote-unquote veteran Muslim diplomats in places like Jordan and Sudan and other Arab countries they said why can't you Saudis and Iranians why can't you come and meet sit down and solve this war in Yemen and from the information that has been made available to yours truly the Saudis showed no response to that they agreed to uh, no we don't want to talk of course they put it in their own diplomatic language but that's the bottom line the United Arab Emirates was involved in these wars either militarily like in Yemen or financially like in Syria and in other places it just came to surfaced as a news item that they were employing an Israeli company to spy on the communications of the Amir of Qatar of Mit'ab the son of the late King Abdullah in Saudi Arabia and even on Sa'd al-Hariri in Lebanon okay a news item like this someone would say what are you doing you're going off in politics you're speaking no no we're not speaking politics or anything we're speaking morality here is it moral to spy on another individual we're strictly within the meanings of the Quran here when we encounter a news item like this and then these same Emiratis they are shopping for another sports team they want to buy the soccer team Liverpool in the UK and they've tendered over two billion dollars I don't know if it was dollars or pounds I think it was two billion of them to buy the team they are killing hungry Muslims in Yemen and then they are shopping for a soccer team in Europe and they say we are your brothers and they deceive some of us by giving certain checks and finances to certain individuals or Islamic organizations and then what is Saudi Arabia doing it's building it's embarking on building a canal between it and Qatar 
so that Qatar becomes an island. They call it the channel of Selwa. And they are doing this not because they consider Muslims brothers of each other. They're more right now they're more comfortable, these Umawi, contemporary Umawis. They are more comfortable with sitting with Bani Nadir, Bani Qaynuqa, and Bani Quraidha in Tel Aviv. And they can't sit with other Muslims. The one of the ministers in the Israeli government said, I've been meeting constantly in Tel Aviv with high-ranking officials from Arab countries and never once did they breach the issue of the Palestinians. They never brought up the issue of the Palestinians with them. And some Muslims still consider them the custodians of the haram and there's something religious and holy about them. No such thing. At the same time, another Israeli minister, and the Israelis now think that they have a shot in their arm because they have their man in the White House. They say that they should assassinate the leadership of Hamas. Remember, Hamas was elected. Hamas didn't come to power through a coup. It did not come uh, to power through hereditary channels. It came to a power through a fair and free election that was attested to by certain well-known political personalities. No one is saying, what do they want to do? They want to kill leaders that were elected by their own people? And then Trump says he wants to cut off aid to UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Work Agency, that has been educating Palestinians and offering them some assistance. Oh, he says $200 million, no more. We're not going to give you any more of that money. Isn't it time for, if we speak about the Saudi influence to divide the Muslims within their religious masjids and meeting places the divisions among the palestinians also has they ha- these divisions have to come to an end these divisions only serve the mutual and the common enemy it is heartening to hear the minister of environmental affairs in algeria a woman Her last name is Zarwati, Fatima Az-Zahra Zarwati, that's her full name. She goes down to the street, she's the minister, she goes down to the street and she participates with the garbage collectors to clean the streets in Algeria. You might not know, or you may know, I don't know, there's right now a strain of cholera in Algeria and it's attributed to the lack of cleanliness, hygiene in the city, in Algiers. So she goes and she participates. That is, uh, uh, this has nothing to do 
with passing judgment on her total character. It's just on this one gesture of showing anyone who is willing to see that work has to be done. And if a high-ranking person has to come down to do the work himself or herself, then let's do it. And in this regard, with the economic warfare against the Islamic peoples all around the world, the, the common mind, the common Muslim mind now, it's, it would say it's high time for at least three countries, Iran, Pakistan, and Turkey, they are subject to the same sources of hostilities. They should be mature enough to set aside the historical Umawi division and to look at the facts on the ground, what's being done to them, and to find, I mean, imagine, we're talking about almost 400 million people. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them talent. He has given them wealth. The only thing they don't have and they haven't given themselves is unity of purpose. And it's not, it's not enough for individuals at Jumu'ah time to ascend the minbar and say, Oh Allah, take care of the Zionists for us. Oh Allah, defend us from our common enemies. Oh, no, no, Allah is not going to do any of that. If you're not yourself, if you're not giving it an effort, then you become like Bani Israel and the history of Bani Israel. And inshallah, and we pray to Allah that we're not going to be a repetition of that history. And our enemies are watching closely. Let them watch. We are growing. We are growing up and they're growing down. And they see that in Syria now there is a missile factory that is being built with missiles with the range between 200 and 700 kilometers and they say they want to do something about that what do they mean they want they're planning for some type of war and there are military preparations on a very large scale that are taking place in the Mediterranean in the Arabian Peninsula what do you say about the Israelis landing their fighter jets in the Saudi air base at Tabuk? What, what's the comment on that? Isn't this within the moral character of Muslims to preempt the bloodshed and the war that is being planned next month or next year? Or we're supposed to remain silent about this? until the war breaks out and at that time we have to demonstrate we have to yell we have to react no we have to approach this with the light of allah and his prophet allahumma arina al-haqqa haqqan warzuqna attiba'ah wa arina al-batila batilan warzuqna ijtinaabah wa la taj'alhu multabisan alayna waj'alna lilmuttaqina imama ربنا آتنا من لدنك رحمة وهيئ لنا من أمرنا رشدا ربنا افتح بيننا وبين قومنا بالحق 
وأنت خير الفاتحين ربنا لا تجعلنا فتنة للقوم الظالمين ربنا نجنا برحمتك من القوم الكافرين ربنا صل على محمد وآل محمد وبارك على محمد وآل محمد وصل على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم وبارك على إبراهيم وآل إبراهيم في العالمين إنك حميد مجيد بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والعصر إن الإنسان لفي خسر إلا الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر ومن أظلم ممن منع مساجد الله أن يذكر فيها اسمه وسعى في خرابها أولئك ما كان لهم أن يدخلوها إلا خائفين لهم في الدنيا خزي ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم إن الله يأمركم أن تؤدوا الأمانات إلى أهلها وإذا حكمتم بين الناس أن تحكموا بالعدل إن الله نعم يعظكم به إن الله كان سميعا بصيرا ولذكر الله أكبر والله يعلم ما تصنعون وأقم الصلاة الله أكبر أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله أشهد أن 